Whether you uh, grew up in the church or not, you're probably familiar with a story, a parable that Jesus told in Luke 15, often called the prodigal son. Do you know this story? It's basically the story about a son who goes full on, boy's gone wild after basically telling his father, hey, you know, I don't really want to wait till you die to get your inheritance money. Can you just give it to me now so I can get out of here? Takes the money, runs, spends wildly, blows it all in a couple of months, and then ends up actually eating out of pig troughs because there's a famine in the land and now the money and the friends are gone. And of course this story ends with a beautiful picture of the father's embracing of his son as he returns home, even if his older brother is indignant about the whole thing. But if you've read that story, you've heard it preached on, it's very often seen as primarily a story about the younger rebellious son. We think of it as a story picturing God's unconditional acceptance and welcome of those who've tried to live apart from Him and who come and return to Him in repentance. And it is that. But as pastor and author Tim Keller points out so rightly, I think, in his excellent book, Prodigal God, he says this, The targets of the story are not wayward sinners, but religious people who do everything the Bible requires. Jesus is pleading not so much with the moral outsiders as with moral insiders. He wants to show them their blindness, narrowness, and self-righteousness and know these things are destroying both their own souls and the lives of people around them. It's a mistake then to think that Jesus tells this story primarily to assure younger brothers of his unconditional love. He goes on, Through this parable, Jesus challenges what nearly everyone has ever thought about God sin and salvation. His story reveals the destructive self-centeredness of the younger brother, but it also condemns the elder brother's moralistic life in the strongest of terms. Jesus is saying that both the irreligious and the religious are spiritually lost. Both life paths are dead ends, and every thought the human race has had about how to connect to God has been wrong. Wow. Writing uh, later to the church in Rome, Saul of Tarsus, now the Apostle Paul, writes famously in Romans 1.16 about the power of the gospel to transform all who would receive its message, stating, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And when he says that, first for the Jew, he's not... He's not continuing those racial boundaries and barriers we talked about the gospel destroying two weeks ago. What he's doing is he's talking about God's continued faithfulness to his covenant people Israel. And he's also talking about the order that Jesus prescribed in Acts 1.8 when he called them to be his witnesses. He said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. It's a, it's a pattern of developments. This is why although Paul is undoubtedly seen as the apostle to the Gentiles, that's what he's often called. We see him almost every time when he enters a city, starting in the synagogues. He goes to the synagogues first and then expands his ministry out from there. It's important to note, however, that although Paul's presentation of the gospel sometimes differs depending on whether he's speaking to a Jewish audience or a Gentile audience, the content of his message never changes. Paul is a broken record when it comes to preaching the life, death, resurrection of Jesus and all that it accomplishes for us, which we could never accomplish for ourselves. Well, we're continuing this morning in a series through the book of Acts, Pioneer Church, and 
We've been talking throughout about the way that when Jesus saves us, he makes us, he transforms us into these witnesses for him. We're his witnesses now. But when it comes to our present day witnessing, our presentation of this same gospel that Paul is preaching, we can very easily fall into a, a trap, really. It's a trap of believing that the gospel is only for outsiders. It's for people outside the Christian faith. It's, a, it's the entryway into faith with God, but, but it's, that's it. It's, it's sort of a one-time thing we hear, we're, we're saved, and then that's it. Forgetting, or at least maybe just ignoring the fact that what we see demonstrated throughout church history, as well as what the reformer Martin Luther said so rightly, that the default mode of the human heart, religious or not, is works righteousness. That's our default mode, seeking to attain a right standing with whatever God we serve through our own efforts. And one of the most glorious but also challenging and in the end offensive things about the gospel of grace and faith in Jesus is that it is entirely, our salvation is entirely on the basis of what Jesus has done and his work on the cross. And we don't contribute anything to our salvation by our own efforts. Which is why, yes, the gospel is the power of God and his salvation, but it's also one of the greatest stumbling blocks to people being saved. Why? Because we find it so hard to accept a message that's just about grace that we can't contribute anything to. It's incredibly hard for us to even get over that. What we're going to see in our passage this morning is that although Paul is speaking to an audience that includes a whole mixture of different people, he's got insiders and outsiders, he's got Christians, devout Jews, God-fearing Gentiles. I think we see those distinctions in verse 26 where he says, Brothers, children of Abraham, God-fearing Gentiles. Although he's got this whole mixed audience, the content of his gospel message is exactly the same, which shows us, first of all, the gospel isn't just for outsiders. The gospel is for all. And secondly, we see how the gospel defeats all forms of works righteousness, of self-salvation, whether religious or otherwise, whether for prodigals or for elder brothers. So as we look at our passage today, I want to just break it down very quickly into three parts. We're going to look at the gospel to the outsider, the gospel to the insider, and then finally, the gospel foundation. All right, just those three things, the gospel to the insider, the outsider, the gospel foundation. So if you closed your Bibles, open them again to Acts 13, follow along with me as we look at this next event in the life of this pioneer church. Let's begin by looking at the gospel to the insider. The gospel to the insider. Now, just to give us a bit of context very quickly, look back at verses 1 through 3. Here's where we see Paul and Barnabas uh, set apart, commissioned, really ordained to head out on this ministry that the Holy Spirit has called them to, which is what initiates actually the first of four missionary journeys that Paul heads out on that we have recorded in the book of Acts. They drop by the island of Cyprus on the way out, which is Barnabas's old hood, but then we see in verse 14, they travel to this city called Pisidian Antioch, which is kind of confusing initially, because the church that they're sent out from is in a city called Antioch. So it's like, well, did they leave from which, without getting into a whole lot of weeds of historical geography, there was actually 16 different Antiochs in the known world at this time, all named after the father of a general in Alexander the Great's army. He must have really loved his father. I don't know what. But Pisidian Antioch, in the, in the province of Galatia, this is northwest 
of the Antioch in Syria, where Paul and Barnabas are set out from. And as I noted earlier, when they arrive in this city, Pisidian Antioch, they head into the synagogue in that city, joining them on the Sabbath day for worship. We're not told how the synagogue rulers knew that Paul and Barnabas were there, but we see in verse 15, after reading the law and the prophets, they invite them up to give a message of encouragement for the people. And this is just very clearly another one of these divine appointments we talked about. The Holy Spirit is orchestrating these events to, to bring about the furtherance and the preaching of His gospel. But I have to believe the synagogue rulers can't have really known what they were asking for when they invited Paul to stand up. It would be like coming to an NDP convention and seeing Christy Clark in the audience and saying, Christy, would you come up and give us a message of encouragement? It would be like, why would you want that? Anyway, they do it. And Paul is like, yeah, sure, I'd love to preach. Verse 16, he stands up, takes this opportunity, and motioning with his hand, he begins his gospel presentation. Now, when we looked at Paul's conversion back in Acts chapter 9, we talked specifically about how Paul, then Saul, was very likely present when Stephen, the first martyr of the early church, was giving that long historical address before the Sanhedrin, right before he was stoned. When you look at Paul's first recorded sermon here in the book of Acts, I think he's taking a page right out of Stephen's playbook because he's, he's giving this same, uh, verses 17 through 23, he's giving a history of Israel. It's briefer, which we're thankful for, it's much shorter, but he basically traces the history of Israel from Abraham all the way through to King David. And what I'm saying, when I call this group the insiders, I'm not suggesting that these uh, devout Jews were insiders in the sense that they'd come to faith in Jesus and were saved in that way, but they certainly would have seen themselves as the historical children of Abraham. They would have seen themselves as being included in God's family. And I think that's why Paul recounts this history of God's faithfulness to his people Israel. And then in verse 23, he begins to build off that history to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to send a Savior to Israel. He's showing how God fulfills the general promises of, of Genesis 3.15. God said, I'm going to send a rescuer that's going to fix what's broken. But also, the very specific promises that God gave to David. In 2 Samuel 7, saying that one of his descendants would build a house for his name and that it would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, initially, that was partially fulfilled in Solomon, but ultimately, that was pointing ahead to Jesus, who would fulfill this Supremely, he would establish a house for God's name and his throne for all time. And then verses 21, or sorry, 26 through 31, look here now. Paul preaches the message of salvation, a message of salvation which for Paul always includes the substitutionary death of a sinless Jesus and his resurrection. You always have those two pieces. And then after establishing that gospel message, in verse 38 and 39, he preaches its application. Look with me there. Paul says this, Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is now proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything he could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Now, for a devout Jewish person, the law of Moses, specifically the sacrificial system where they would offer animals for the forgiveness of their sins, to atone for their sins, that was the only means of forgiveness they knew of. That's, that's the system they were operating under. But when, what Paul is telling his Jewish listeners here in verse 38 is that through Jesus, literally through his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, a far superior sacrifice, a once for all sacrifice has been offered, a sacrifice that verse 39 says 
offers justification. It brings justification before a holy God to whoever it's applied to in a way that the law of Moses never could. And we need to spend just a second talking about what that word justification means because it's a very specific legal term that means more than just forgiveness. See, forgiveness is just about absolving someone of responsibility or payment. We're like, you know what, I'm not going to hold that against you anymore. I forgive you. But justification, although it includes forgiveness, well beyond just absorbing debt, justification is about paying a debt. It's about serving a sentence. It's about paying the price necessary so that that person who was guilty is now innocent. They are completely righteous without any guilt. What you see very clearly Paul is saying to these Jewish believers is that through Jesus they can have both those things, forgiveness and justification. And for his insider Jewish listeners here as well as for you and I today, this is both the freeing and the offensive message of the gospel. It's a message of forgiveness for sins and justification, right standing before holy God, but it's a message of something that we can't achieve on our own in any way by our own efforts. And as strange as it may sound to say it out loud, that's the part about salvation that we struggle with the most. We struggle with that part the most. Why? Well, I love a a story a pastor told me one time about a woman in his congregation who stated this struggle perfectly. Let me share it with you. She was struggling with this whole idea of a, a gospel of grace. And she said to this pastor, she said, you know, if I contribute at least something to my salvation, even the tiniest little bit. I I like that more because, well, it gives me the ability to bargain with God because, well, I I had at least a part in saving myself. But all this talk about grace, free, I don't do anything. If it's just a gift of grace that I contribute nothing to, well, then I lose all control and there's nothing that God cannot ask of me. And she's right. (laughs) I'd submit to you that's exactly the point. Because the gospel of grace, it offers you absolutely everything you need to be forgiven of your sins, to be justified before a holy God. That's why it's such a freeing message. But it also removes all grounds of boasting, all grounds of bargaining with God, which is why religious insiders, even in the church today, find it so offensive. Because if you did nothing to accomplish your salvation, what grounds would you ever have to judge somebody else to stand over as though you're superior to them when you've been saved by the same gospel of grace that they were if you did nothing to accomplish your own salvation what grounds would you have to bargain with god as to what he can and can't ask you to do i think we need to consider that we need to come back to that all the time return to that often and really ask yourself the question am i offended by the very gospel of grace that saved me Am I offended by the very gospel of grace that saved me? And if you believe that your behavior has any bearing on your standing with your relationship with God, if you think your relationship with God is in jeopardy because you didn't have your quiet time this week, or if you think God is more, loves you more this week because you went to five Bible studies, the answer to that question is yes. To a certain degree, you are offended by a gospel of grace because you think I should be able to do something to achieve this. And you're not. You, you, you're not contributing anything. That's one of the reasons the Pharisees were so offended by Jesus and one of the reasons why the rulers in verse 45 here, they, they're so jealous of Paul and Barnabas. They hate their message. 
they have them expelled from the city. Then and now the gospel of grace means a complete loss of all control when it comes to our salvation. That's the gospel to the insider. Let's look next at the gospel to the outsider. The gospel to the outsider. Now we can already see things are shifting. Tides are shifting in the church from what we looked at two weeks ago with Peter and the centurion and the inclusion of the Gentiles into the the faith. You see, look at verse 16 and also verse 26. Paul is now including the Gentiles in this address to a Jewish audience in the synagogue. He's saying, hey, and also you God-fearing Gentiles. He wouldn't have been saying that months earlier. Now he's including them. But notice what I mentioned as we began here. Although He's speaking to this mixed audience. Paul delivers the exact same message to both of them. He doesn't change the message. He doesn't say, okay, here's the message for you Jewish guys, and now here's the message for you guys. He's got the same message for them. The only difference is that for the insiders, that section 17 through 22 would just be a historical review. Here for the outsiders, it's historical teaching. He's laying the foundation upon which he'll show Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. But if we remember who these God-fearing Gentiles were, we see how this gospel message of forgiveness and justification, they would have heard it very differently than the Jewish people. It would have struck them very differently because God-fearers that we keep hearing about through the book of Acts, these were non-Jewish men and women who'd come to believe in the God of Israel but had not submitted themselves fully to the law of Moses, things like circumcision, dietary laws. They hadn't gone that far. So for these outsiders, the law of Moses that Paul talks about in verse 39, they didn't see that as a means of access to God. They saw that as a means of, of hindering their access to God. That was the thing that kept them as outsiders because they, didn't wanna, they couldn't submit to those things. So, knowing that, well, you can see why that same gospel message of forgiveness and justification through Jesus apart from the law, that was really good news for them. That was incredible freeing news for them. They received it very differently. I mean, this would be like a super fancy golf and country club saying, hey, you no longer need to be uber-rich billionaires to be members here. Play our golf courses. Just come. Use our facilities. Next Sunday, we're all headed to Pebble Beach to play. That's what it would have been like for them. And and I think this is absolutely one of the reasons why this huge citywide turnout comes out the next Sabbath. Everyone hears about this. There's actually a way that we can be part of of this message of salvation without this submitting to circumcision, without submitting to these other laws that used to keep us out. It's a great message. So the whole city shows up. Verse 48 and 44, we see this whole city. I mean, you would have thought Paul had told them, hey, next Sunday, Bono and you two are going to lead the hymn sing. Everybody comes. They want to see what this is. But no, it's, it's even better than that. It's better than that because for them, the gospel of grace was really good news. It was good news. It was a message, finally, of inclusion. A message that removed the barriers that had always kept them on the outside looking in. It was a message where they saw that the membership fees of requirements of the law that had always been too steep for them afford, they saw that now being paid for them by Jesus. And truly good news. And when we think about how this applies to our lives today, two things immediately come to mind for me. First of all, that, that very same author we looked at at the beginning, Tim Keller, talking about our presentation of the gospel today. I love what he said. Listen to this. Whenever you tell anyone today, come to Jesus. 
come and let me tell you about the Christian faith. He said, they almost invariably think you're just asking them to subscribe to another moral code of rules and behaviors. That's all they hear. Which is just to say, the gospel truly is good news, but if it's not a gospel of grace, where it's not about your earning your way in, nobody's going to hear it as good news. It's something that they should want to listen to. I don't know, maybe you're here this morning and you're rejecting the Christian faith right now. You're like, I don't know about that. Maybe you have a loved one who's currently rejecting the, the, the Christian faith as well. And, and you're rejecting Christianity right now, not because you know who Jesus is and you understand what Christianity is about and you're just not interested. It could be because you've just never heard the gospel of grace before. You've never heard about a Jesus and a Christianity that's not about your earning your way in at all, but about a Savior who's paid everything for you to be entered in. It's truly good news. Which is why, if you know Jesus as your Savior today, whenever you're telling someone about the gospel, every single time you do that, you need to distinguish the gospel from religion. It's not the same thing as religion. Religion is earning your way in. The gospel is Jesus earned your way in. And if you don't show people the difference, they're never going to see how Christianity is actually unique among all other religions of the world. There's nothing else like Christianity, but nobody's going to know that. If it's not a gospel of grace, it is actually just the same. If you earn your way in, Christianity is no different than any other religion. But you don't. Jesus earns your way in. Second thing we see from this, although there is this incredible response to Paul's presentation of the gospel of grace, we see all too quickly how works righteousness seeps its way back in. It really is the default of the human heart. And we know this because not that many years later, this very same Paul writing to these very same Galatians says this. Listen, Galatians 3, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it really was for nothing, does God give you this Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard. You see, they'd come to believe the gospel of grace and then they started to return to or trying to earn their way in again. And I promise you, the human heart is no different today. We're not better or more advanced. We can do the same thing. We need to guard ourselves lest we come into God's family understanding grace only to slowly over time we revert to that same default, start trying to earn a salvation that's already being accomplished for us. And God help us, not only can we be sucked back into that same trap ourselves, we can also lead others when we do that. We can lead others out of the grace-bought freedom that they have back into slavery as well. That's why we need to guard ourselves so intentionally and carefully this way. Because what Paul says so powerfully in Romans 8, we've not received a spirit that makes us slaves again, but a spirit of sonship that makes us God's children and co-heirs with Christ for all time. Our salvation is done. Listen, it's done. There's nothing more that needs to be accomplished. That's why when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it's finished. Salvation is complete now. You don't need to do anything else to achieve it. 
That's the gospel to the outsider and the insider. Both of them, the exact same grace-filled content. Received differently, but the same content. Last thing I want us to look at very quickly is the foundation that Paul lays underneath both presentations. Let's look finally at the gospel foundation. The gospel foundation. Now, you don't got to be an engineer or, or a, a contractor, a Lego master builder of any kind to know that when you're building a structure, a house of some kind, if in order for it to be safe, stable, to endure over time, it needs to have a solid, strong foundation. That's where you begin. You start with the foundation. I mean, this was illustrated simply and powerfully by Jesus. End of his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, he talked about wise and foolish builders. One who built his house on the rock, the other on the sand. But did you know that as important and foundational as the substitutionary death of Jesus in our place is to Paul's gospel, did you know that there's an even deeper, more solid foundation underneath that? The gospel foundation, you see it throughout Paul's letters. You know what it is? It's the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. And we see it here in our passage from verses 30 all the way through 37. This huge section of his presentation of the gospel is all dedicated to proving biblically and forensically the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because for Paul, and this still strikes me every time I think about it, if you remove the resurrection from the gospel presentation, that means everything. Jesus coming to earth, baby Jesus at Christmas, Jesus living a perfect sinless life, even Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross, all of those things without the resurrection, they mean nothing. They accomplish nothing. Wow, okay, what do I mean by that? What does Paul mean? Well, simply, Jesus' resurrection, that's God's stamp of approval. I have received that payment, and it actually has accomplished what it was supposed to accomplish. And it means Jesus really is who he says he was. He was telling people, I'm, I'm God, I'm God's Lamb of God, come to forgive your sins. When he rises, it shows he really was that. He really was who he said he was. And this is eternally significant because despite what some scholars may try to lead us to believe today, Jesus made some very audacious claims during his earthly ministry, one of which being, I'm God. I am God's sacrifice. Come to the world to redeem the world. And if Jesus, he, if he comes, lives that life that people would say, yeah, it was perfect. He taught us some great things. He dies this brutal death as an example, ostensibly to pay for our sins. But he stays dead? If Jesus stays dead, he isn't someone we should be following. He's not someone we should be trusting in for our eternal salvation. It means he was just, basically he was crazy. Or he was lying to us. He's not somebody we should be following. I mean, think of Paul's own conversion on the road to Damascus. Didn't Paul know about the claims Jesus made from his followers? Didn't Paul know Jesus had been crucified on a Roman cross? Yeah, he knew all that stuff, and it meant nothing to him. So what? But when Paul met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, that changed everything for him. The resurrection was the thing that took all that meaningless circumstances and transformed them into a truly life-changing gospel. Now he was a whole new person. Now I need to believe this because he really is raised from the dead. Another pastor, he told this great story about someone who came to him after a service one Sunday, wanted to pick his brain, really pick a fight, and uh, 
wanted to ask him about uh, what does the Bible say about uh, sexuality and specifically about same-sex relationships. You know, I'm not sure, is this really relevant today? And he's asking him all these questions. And the pastor responded to him and said, uh, I understand your question. I just want to ask you one question first. Do you, do you believe uh, that Jesus literally bodily rose from the dead? The guy kind of stopped for a second. He's like, what? What? I don't know. What does that have to do with what I just asked you? And the pastor very gently and kindly responded by saying, actually, it has everything to do with your question. Because if Jesus rose bodily from the dead, then that means everything he ever said and taught, everything the Bible says about him is true and it needs to be followed regardless of whether or not I like it, whether or not I think it's right, whether or not our culture agrees that it's right or historical attitudes have changed over time. If, that's what, if Jesus really rose from the dead, then we need to follow that. Everything he said is true. But if he didn't rise from the dead, he's a liar and a fake. And who cares what the Bible says about sexuality or anything? If the Bible's wrong about Jesus, it's wrong about everything. And he's right. And for you and I today, I think we need to have that very same gospel foundation that Paul had. Remember, he went so far, verse 1 Corinthians 15 said, If Jesus is not raised from the dead, we're still in our sins. We're of all people most to be pitied. Why? Because he didn't accomplish anything. We're not saved. We don't have anything to look forward to now or after our death. Because he wasn't actually God. But if he's raised, then we are truly saved. He did accomplish our resurrection one day for all time. If Jesus truly did rise from the dead, it becomes the foundation upon which we build and base the rest of our faith. That's what we start from there and build on it. So maybe you're here today and, and like all of us at certain times, you come to parts of the Bible, things that Jesus said that you struggle with, you, you find it hard to apply and live according to today in our modern 2017 enlightened living. We say, I, I don't, does that really matter anymore? Does this still apply to me today? I don't know. I think the solution, and this is what I do myself, every time I feel that way, I go back to the resurrection. That's where I start. That's the foundation I build from each time. Okay, who's Jesus? Did, did he really rise from the dead? Okay, if he really rose from the dead, that means he's God. Okay, so he probably, he probably knows some things that I don't know. He's probably considered some things that I can't see in my limited perspective. It doesn't mean that I don't have questions and doubt anymore, but it, that needs to inform how I respond, how I, how I interact with those places of struggle and doubt now. It should change the way that we respond to those things. If Jesus truly is risen, He truly is God. And the more we do that, that's how, building on that foundation over time, we develop a faith that is truly solid and unshakable no matter what life hands to us. We build on that foundation of the resurrection and each step up from there. As we close this morning, I think it's important for us, you individually, all of us together, but also just as a church family, to think about and understand where we land in those three categories that Paul listed back in verse 26 there, broadly speaking. Which, which category do we fall into? Where does this message, this gospel of grace land us today. Maybe you're here this morning and you sense that although you're interested in Jesus, you're kind of interested in the claims of Christianity, there's some things that are still hindering you. They're, they're holding you back 
from coming to faith in Jesus, my prayer for you, if that's you today, is that if one of those hindrances is just feeling, well, Christianity is just like every other religion. It's just asking me to submit to a new list of rules and regulations, a new moral code. I pray that if that's you, that just like those God-fearing Gentiles, those outsiders in our passage today, you would find freedom to finally take that step of faith. Realizing, for maybe for the first time, that in this gospel of grace, it's not about your obedience to some set of rules at all. It's about Jesus' obedience for you that gives you access, that gives you entry, and you would know the freedom the gospel provides to you. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've trusted Jesus for your salvation. You sense, okay, well, I'm inside God's family. I am one of his insiders. But like all of us from one time or another, you are still burdened every day to one degree or another by still trying to earn or maybe even just maintain your acceptance with God through your behavior. If that's you, I pray today's message would help take your neck out of that yoke of slavery that Jesus has already freed you from. You would experience again the true freedom of resting in his completed work for you and your eternally secure adoption as his son or daughter. It's complete. It's finished. Rest in it. Or... I pray this is a number of you. Maybe today you're just listening to this and you're just rejoicing. Maybe you're just rejoicing in the fact that although you know you're not worthy of forgiveness, you know you're not worthy of justification, you strive to obey God every day. It still comes out of a place of knowing I'm already accepted. I'm not trying to earn His acceptance. I'm obeying because I know I am accepted because you've understood and embraced the gospel of grace. If that's you, if you're just resting in that truth this morning, first of all, praise God for that. Secondly, I pray that you would receive a calling, I believe, on you from the Spirit today. It's a calling to help others right now, to help those hindered outsiders or those uh, burdened, enslaved insiders, help them to see what living under that gospel of grace looks like through the way you live, through the way you speak to them, calling them back to the freedom that is accomplished for them in the gospel of grace. Let's pray right now and ask God to help us wherever we land to know and experience and live in the freedom that he accomplished for us in his life, death, and resurrection. I'd ask as well, if you're helping me serve communion or playing, would you come forward and help me at this time? Living God, we come to you right now with hearts that are humbled, as we think about how you, you accomplished everything for us, we struggle against that. We don't know what to do with that. But I pray you would help us to either return to that freedom once again, or you would help us to experience that freedom maybe for the first time today. That your life, death, and resurrection accomplished everything for us. And that, yes, we do strive to obey you now, but not in order to earn your love, but because... You have accepted us, and it's you, you do accept us now. And we know the freedom of the gospel of grace today and live in it today and always. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.